You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. Good morning, everyone. It's Michelle Camayo from Bolton & Company here speaking with you. Thanks for joining us today. It is a special edition for us. Today's webinar is all about vaccines and the workplace. Joining me is Nicole Camp, partner at Fisher Phillips which is an employment law firm. I'm sure you've uh, heard Nicole's name before or maybe even attended a past uh, recording or session with Nicole. So, Nicole, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. A few housekeeping notes before we get started. Everyone's on mute. Please ask your questions via the questions pane in your webinar toolbar. We will be monitoring that. Although the questions you pose, we most likely will not answer until the end of the webinar. A recording will be available as well as a copy of the slides and a PDF of the Q&As that were posed. Generally, we send those out in the post-webinar email that goes out Monday afternoon. Today, we, we're really here to talk about vaccine and, and vaccines in the workplace. Our goal is to have a conversation with you, you know, have a practical discussion. So much is uncertain right now. Note that we're not giving legal advice, even though Nicole is an attorney. She's not here giving you legal advice. We just really want to be able to discuss what's out there, what we know now, um, what you can and you can't do at this point based on guidance. And, um, you know, we know that HR leaders and business owners, you know, you want validation on what you've read or a second set of eyes on how you're interpreting something. And so we're hoping that this conversation provides a little bit of that validation and guidance for you. We have looked at vaccines in the workplace and, and we've looked through a lens and we've got a few categories here to talk about today. Cost, you know, maintaining a safe work environment and, and whether or not having a, a vaccine policy is in line with that. Designing your employer policy and what you can and cannot do and things to consider. Talking about on-site vaccine clinics and vaccine scheduling. I know there's a lot of uncertainty uh, about where to schedule an appointment or how will you know when it's time to schedule an appointment, et cetera. So we will talk about that too. The first thing that we wanna do is we wanna start off with what we know now. There is so much uncertainty that I felt that it was important to at least get out of the way what we actually know, <laughs> what's not uncertain. What you can rely on, at least for now. And, and that's what we want to go into. The first thing we know now is that the vaccines are only available under EUA, which is emergency use authorization. So they are not FDA approved. And it, it may not be possible for employers to require the vaccines just yet. I know that some of our um, Internal colleagues here at Bolton have actually been on webinars where uh, some attorneys have said, you know, it's illegal to require the vaccine because it's not FDA, FDA approved. And Nicole, you were mentioning that uh, you don't think it's that 
cut and dry, that you think there's this gray area. Can you talk just a little bit about what your stance would be on whether or not it's illegal to require them just yet? Right, of course. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier to when Michelle and I were chatting, reasonable minds can differ. And because there is not a lot of black and white guidance on this, um, different attorneys, different advisors are interpreting this differently. And uh, what our firm's position is at this time is that the EEOC came out in December with some guidance as to vaccines and indicated, it did not say outright, but indicated that employers can in fact require. Uh, one of the arguments that came up in response was that um, it's possible for an employee to refuse, even if it's required, even if it's job related and consistent with a business necessity, based on the fact that this is an emergency use authorization uh, status as of now. And if that employee is disciplined or fired or any other adverse action is taken, there's the possibility, there's a risk of a wrongful termination and violation of public policy claim. We haven't seen that tested yet, but that is one of the considerations on that risk spectrum. And then I think we're gonna get to this, but on the other end of the spectrum, there's the OSHA general duty clause to maintain a workplace free from uh, hazards, a safe and healthy workplace. And so another argument is if an employer doesn't require the vaccine, that could be seen as a failure to comply with that requirement, that general duty clause. So employers are kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place as of now in terms of making the determination. But these are all considerations that, uh, that we're kind of debating internally and with our clients. Good. So some of that is what we know now, but what we know now is, is a little bit of uh, factoring in risk and moving forward. And so it's it's uh, it, it's an uncertain time for sure. We know that the vaccines are not available to all of the public just yet. We know that for sure. Uh, therefore, you know, an on-site vaccine clinic isn't available in the way that we think of it. So if you you may have had your your HR team or your executive team come to you and say, let's get a vaccine clinic going, just like we get a flu clinic. You know, we put on a flu clinic each year, we're going to do a vaccine clinic. Uh, at this point, that's not an option at this point. We've talked to several vendors who we think would be the ones that would uh, would work to have a vaccine clinic. And they are saying, you know, logistically, there's just, there are issues, you know, freezing them in a specific temperature range and, and so forth. Uh, there are some... There's some talk, even Dr. Fauci, I believe yesterday, he said, look, um, we expect pharmacies and, and community health clinics, and, and we expect to see some mobile clinics out there to ramp up the, the distribution of the vaccine. But we don't know what that's going to look like, and we don't know if these mobile clinics are going to go to the employers and say, hey, we want to come on site to you. We just don't know. So right now, an on-site vaccine clinic is not something that you can put together because they just do not exist at this point. And as Nicole mentioned, she talked about that guidance from the EEOC that does seem to imply or indicate that you can require them as long as you allow for some exceptions or with some exceptions, and you can see those on the screen. And then the link to the technical assistance is there as well. 
We know that employer vaccination programs are not mandatory at this time, but we need to watch carefully for updates that could come from the state level, the local or federal law level. Uh, so we keep a close eye on Cal OSHA here in California and Fed OSHA and to see how that might change. Group health plans will cover the vaccine for plan participants at 100% if it's recommended by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. Uh, it will be. That's pretty much a foregone conclusion at this point. It will apply only to in-network for it to be covered at 100%. Right now, President Biden is saying that there will be a vaccine available to every American at no cost. And, and it will not need to be run through the group health plan. Those vaccines will be purchased through federal dollars. So cost of the vaccine at this point, we, we believe it'll, based on what we're hearing, that it will continue to be uh, at no cost for, for quite some time until you know, everyone is vaccinated. And the big question we've heard a lot about, and so I put it here, even though what we know is still a little bit of a gray area, will the employees, if an employer says you have to get a vaccine, will the side effects or any adverse side effects from the vaccine that the employer mandated, is that going to be compensable under workers' comp? And the answer is that it could very well be the jurisdiction and the specific circumstances will factor into that compensability, but it, it's possible. It, it's absolutely possible. So that is some another piece of information to keep in mind, you know, another uh, risk that you want to weigh in as you are developing your vaccine policy. And Nicole, did you have anything to add here before we move on to the next slide? Um, in terms of what we know, some uh, items to keep on the horizon, we've heard that Johnson & Johnson also is going to be uh, or has met the EUA um, standard and a committee will be meeting Friday to discuss next steps and how to make that available to the public. We know that that's good news in terms of having another option, um, a little bit different in terms of the one um, one-shot vaccination. Um, We've also recognized that there's been some research into the, the prioritizing of the different groups and the lack of equity among access. And so that's something to keep in mind as our discussion goes forward as well. Um, another headline, uh, CDC just launched a tool to help search locations to receive vaccinations. It's called vaccinefinder.org. And it's, it's actually an existing website that's been in place um, in terms of locating flu vaccines and travel vaccines and has now been updated to include um, the COVID-19 vaccine. It's funded by the CDC and Boston Children's Hospital. And it's, it's another resource for employers and individuals to go to in terms of locating the vaccine. Unfortunately, it doesn't help in terms of booking the appointments. Um, the individual still has to separately track that down and make their appointment, but hopefully it will help reduce some of the, the confusion and the, so many different uh, you know, it, places to go for information. This will be more of a, a central clearinghouse for this information going forward.
Yeah, so much out there and so much developing information as far as resources too. So vaccine finder, vaccinefinder.org is one that Nicole just mentioned. And then and towards the end of the presentation, I also have another link for you that will take you to um, the public health department in each county. And the public health department is really the, the organization that is uh, uh, allocating and, and running these appointments. So that would be a good resource for you too. So we talked about, we talked about Austin a little bit and how really all of the vaccines right now, the cost is being absorbed by the federal government. So, and Biden has said, you know, everyone's gonna get a vaccine that wants one and it will be free. For how long that will last, we're unsure about that. But once the federal dollars run out, then the group health plan, presumably, it will be a preventive care item covered at 100% if it, an individual goes to an in-network physician. So there's that as well. So the group health plan will cover it at 100% once it is, it has to be FDA approved, that will be step one. Very good point in terms of the providing the paid time off, the travel time, Absolutely, if it's required, this is something that employers want to do, pay for the time uh, to and from the appointment, pay for the mileage, and then, as Michelle, you mentioned, that the cost of the actual vaccine will be absorbed. In terms of additional incentives, um, I have some bullets in the, in the next couple of slides to hit on that, but there are risks involved in that as well. And there was guidance from the EEOC that had been proposed, proposed rules, that were in place at the beginning of the year and those were withdrawn by the Biden administration and they gave some instruction in terms of what would be permitted, what would be um, uh, acceptable in terms of an incentive and uh, wellness program requirements under the ADA and HIPAA and other rules. And that guidance spoke about uh, de minimis incentives. So incentives, the example was a water bottle or a small gift card. And um, so at the time, our, our understanding was, and again, these were proposed rules, not in, uh, enacted, um, but our understanding was that if it was a de minimis incentive, then it would be permitted and you didn't have to go through all the hurdles and requirements of the wellness program. And uh, once those were withdrawn, the, um, uh, the number, almost 50 business groups across the country submitted a letter to the EEOC requesting further guidance and requesting that that guidance be as broad as possible in terms of allowing employee, employers to put these items in place to facilitate these programs and also as clear as possible because even when we get the guidance, there's still questions and there's still follow-up FAQs and there's still you know, areas of uncertainty. Um, and since then, there's been crickets. There has not been any further response. And what we're hearing from the Biden administration is um, a freeze on that particular area. Um, but we do expect additional uh, guidance from OSHA. And Michelle, I think you're gonna hit on this as well, but we did receive some information about mitigating, preventing COVID in the workplace came out from federal OSHA uh, towards the end of January. And then Biden issued an executive order um, requesting emergency temporary standards similar to what we have here in, in California from Cal OSHA by mid-March. So four states already have this in place. Um, California, as always, front of the line, Oregon, Michigan, and Virginia. 
And by mid-March, we should be getting some additional guidance from, um, from federal OSHA with emergency temporary standards with regard to COVID-19. So, um, so as we had talked about, this information is quickly evolving, uh, evolving regularly and staying on top of it is important. Um, but what we do know as of now is that if an employer is gonna be requiring the vaccine, you don't wanna open yourself up to wage and hour issues. Um, because of uh, the time it takes and uh, any sort of expenses incurred as a result of that. And that could include, um, you know, potential, uh, I think there were a couple questions about if there's a side effect. Um, and if it's required, that side effect, depending on the severity, could trigger a worker's comp claim. And that's something that, Michelle, you also touched on, but certainly if it's required, it's going to be almost, a, I would say, a guaranteed workers' comp coverage. Um, if it's strongly encouraged, there's potentially an argument, but even so, you know, an employee could take the position that it was work-related in order to, uh, to make that claim. Thank you for saying that, Nicole. And, and um, I think my audio is, is uh, back online. Does everything sound okay on your end, Nicole? You sound great to me, yep. Perfect. Okay, so yes, so I want to make sure that we we emphasize this again because this it has been a topic. I, we have been asked this question several different ways, whether or not adverse side effects could trigger a work comp claim. And the answer is that if it's if you have a policy where you require your employees to get the vaccine, then an, uh, it is almost certain that any significant side effect is going to trigger uh, a workers comp claim. But if you are just highly encouraging it or incentivizing it, you're playing within this gray area. And, and what that means is that we're not sure because the employee could make an argument that if you highly encouraged it and incentivized it, depending on how you did that, it, the, it, the employee could have felt coerced. And, and, and I'm certain that, that that would be a claim at least one employee is going to make if an, if an employer uh, were to move forward with that type of policy. So something to keep in mind as you're designing them as well. And Nicole, I believe you said, but I think I was working with audio issues, that if the employer requires the vaccine, that they will need to pay for any type of time that it took to drive to the appointment and, and to get back from the appointment. Was that a definite yes from your end, or can you just restate that yes. for me one more time. Yes, yeah, if the employer is requiring you want to absorb the cost, any additional cost, and then pay for the time. And I'll, you know, I'll add a little bit to that. Even though we're talking about vaccines, employers that are um, requiring employees to do temperature and symptom checks before they enter the workplace, let's say there's a line before they come in and even a very short amount of time, that time should be compensated. Um, and that one I actually am seeing tested currently. I have a class action where one of the claims is that the time it took for the employees to go through that symptom and temperature check process was not compensated. So it, it's very clear, you, again, you don't wanna open yourself up to any wage and hour claims, any class action potential issues by not having uh, paid for that time. Some employers are kind of estimating and paying, let's say like a half day, four hours, something like that. Um, to the extent that you can be precise, we do recommend that. Um, but if, if you are giving an estimate, you wanna follow up with the employee and document that 
if they believe that they spent any additional time or that the amount provided does not compensate them for the time that they took to get the vaccine, then they should let the company know and that you can have a further dialogue. And I'm working on heading into our next slide within the technical issues I'm experiencing. Um, but the next slide is all about maintaining a safe work environment. So we also heard from our employers that they wanted to know, um, do I have to require a vaccine in order to comply with certain standards? What, what happens if I don't have a policy? You know, and Nicole touched on this. Do I have to do this to maintain a safe environment for that general duty clause under OSHA? And so, Nicole, can you can you walk us through a little bit of that those questions? Right, right. And we did, you know, kind of hit it earlier on, but OSHA has a general duty clause that requires employers to maintain a workplace free from recognized hazards, is how it's it's um, phrased. And so the question is, you know, if it ultimately becomes, let's say, uh, highly recommended or best practice to require the vaccine, employers that don't do so, um, could they potentially be violating that general duty requirement under OSHA? And then we talked about the other end of the spectrum of the risk of, of pushback, of um, resistance from employees because of the EUA standard, also because of potential protected concerted activity under the NLRA. And this is whether or not you're a unionized or non-unionized workforce, that could be another potential claim. So we're, we're definitely evaluating this as we go forward. But um, as of now, you know, best practice is for employers to consider their particular workplace, consider their particular workforce, and then make the determinations that are uh, best, the best fit for their staff and their um, and these individuals that they service. Um, so there really is no kind of yes or no answer, black or white answer. Um, it, it's an individualized assessment and a case by case analysis that is continuing to evolve as well. Um, in terms of, actually that takes us to the next bullet with essential workers versus other workers. Um, there may be a distinction in the determination based on position or department or duties. You know, certain workers also may be eligible for priority while other workers may not if they're like the admin staff or the office workers versus the frontline workers. Um, each of these analyses, though, should be done on a case by case basis, um, even when you're saying, well, OK, those employees with direct contact with the public, those should be at the front of the list. You still want to consider whether the requirement is job related and consistent with a business necessity. Um, and that's because if you go into the, the analysis of if an employee needs an accommodation, and I'll go more into this later, um, that's going to be part of the foundation is that determination whether the requirement is job related and consistent with a business necessity. If they're not vaccinated, are they going to pose a direct threat uh, to the health and safety of themselves or others? and the different steps that the EEOC guidance lays out. And I do want to point out that, you know, California does not have anything currently on this issue. Um, but being California, it's likely that we will hear something in the future. So right now we're looking at EEOC guidance, not case law, not statute. Um, and we're, we're working with that information, but that's subject to interpretation and a court could find um, you know that that it, it goes one way versus the other so definitely something to um, to think about 
And then if you if right. you don't mind, I'll head into the last bullet. Um, the implications of having a policy. So we are recommending that employers do once they determine which approach they're going to take, they put a policy in place. And it's for multiple purposes. It's for clarification. It's for consistency. It's for maintaining that you know health and safety protocol in the workplace. Also, it's in part to to train and advise managers and supervisors on how to recognize and how to respond to a request for accommodation. So the policy does want to state the company's position, um, notify employees that there is a right to accommodation, specifically if there's a disability or religious basis for it, potential ramifications for refusing or declining to comply with the policy, the reimbursement issues that we talked about, all that can be encompassed in the policy. But what we've found over the course of the past year is that these policies need to be somewhat fluid. Um, and for example, the CDC came out a couple of weeks ago with uh, revised guidance on those who have been vaccinated and having to quarantine if they were exposed or had close contact to somebody with uh, COVID-19. Um, and the CDC said that if two weeks have passed since the last dose, um, and if the individuals received both doses, if you're within three months of that second dose and the individual does not have any symptoms since the close contact, the quarantine requirement does not apply. And actually LA County adopted that same standard or a very, very similar standard to those requirements, those criteria. But California as a state and Cal OSHA has not adopted that. So, you know, in California, we always have to look at what is the most protective and what is the most um, beneficial to employees. Now, I, I do understand that Cal OSHA has been meeting recently to discuss revisions to the emergency temporary standards that talk about the exclusion pay and all the requirements in the workplace and the testing and the, um, the outbreak requirements and so forth. So they've been meeting to talk about uh, any changes, um, any tweaks to the current language, and then whether actually to make it permanent. Um, but currently it has not been adjusted. And currently Cal OSHA says, regardless of vaccination status, if the employee is exposed, they need to be excluded for the quarantine period. And California also hasn't adopted this. So that's why it's important to kind of put the puzzle together and then look at the um, the, the protection that is most beneficial and most conservative in terms of which one the employer should be complying with. I have one quick um, question, you know, or actually concern that I, some employers have brought up, Nicole, and I think I know the answer, but I'm just going to ask it anyway. Um, is there any risk for a lawsuit either short or long-term if the employee experiences issues related to an employer-mandated vaccine? So currently, um, it, it, the strongest uh, position is that it will be excluded by workers' compensation. So if that individual, the question is if that individual um, could potentially bring a civil lawsuit for negligence or um, you know, something even stronger, than that, then that will generally be relegated to the workers' compensation forum. And there actually was a case that came down this week where the wife of an employee uh, was exposed after her husband was exposed at work and tried to bring a claim against the company 
um, in civil court. And the court kicked that out and said that workers' compensation exclusion principles apply and that the recourse is for the employee to seek the workers' compensation benefits, but the wife of the employee does not have a right or standing. Now, what I hear from the plaintiff's attorneys is that they're gonna to try to rework their complaint and refile it, but this is certainly one of the um, issues that we thought about for this past year is, is this a way for individuals to come, again, uh, come and um, bring a claim against the company, um, whether it's a family member, whether it's a customer, and at least we have a good result from one of the very few cases to uh, be testing this in court. That's good. So you're thinking that that result would translate into any adverse reactions, you know, short-term or long-term from the vaccine? I think it can be analogized in that respect. It was work-related, okay. it was required by the employee, it was arising out of it in the course of. Got it, okay. All right, so we will, in this section, we, we want to talk about designing the employer policy. We're really, what I got out of what Nicole was saying was that, you know, maybe you don't have to require an employee to, to get the vaccine in order to maintain a safe work environment, but it certainly seems like you need to do a risk assessment at the very least to show that you've given it thought and then have some type of position or, or policy on the vaccines uh, that you can communicate. And so now the questions kind of become, uh, when we design a policy for ourselves, what does that look like and what do we need to consider specifically, even though I know that Nicola's talked a lot about those, those issues. Uh, right. So here, uh, Nicola, you wanna go ahead and take this slide? Yeah, I'll go through a couple of these bullets um, and feel free to chime in at any time. Um, but kind of, again, taking us up to the higher level, from a legal standpoint, the initial consideration that an employer wants to go through is that they can articulate how the vaccine is job-related and consistent with a business necessity. Um, and that's not necessarily critical to the initial decision, but it will be required when it comes to enforcing the vaccine requirement, particularly when the employees um, request exemptions. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that as well. Then you want to ensure that the policies inform the employee of the vaccine requirement, as I mentioned, um, spell out how employees can seek the accommodation based on the medical condition or a sincerely held religious belief. Um, and then if there is a employee that comes and seeks an exemption, the employer needs to be prepared to engage in an interactive dialogue, to document the process, to consider whether the accommodation can be provided or whether it's an undue hardship on the company, and go through the similar analysis that we're, as employers, are used to going through if an employee with a disability or a religious need uh, requests an accommodation. Um, accommodations can include uh, a continued use of a face mask, which, by the way, I'll note that of the current guidance regardless says that even employees who are vaccinated or in a workforce that's primarily vaccinated do need to continue implementing their um, safe, safety uh, protocol and social distancing and mask wearing and um, and all the the everything we've implemented over the past year has to be continued for at least the foreseeable future. Um, if there's any changes in that, we'll certainly let you know, but um, because it's still uncertain as to transferring um, 
the, the duration of the vaccine, that is the recommendation. But um, an accommodation could include maybe um, you know, additional PPE, moving the employee's work site or workstation, um, maybe temporarily reassigning the employee, uh, continuing or uh, approving a telework arrangement, or kind of another consideration to keep um, back of the mind is a potential leave of absence if there's no other way to accommodate. Um, and that undue hardship standard, it's a fairly high standard. It does vary based on whether their request is, is because of disability or religious beliefs. Um, and employers also wanna consider any additional state law um, requirements. California does tend to be, as we you know, all know, um, much more kind of conservative when it comes to protecting employee rights. Um, but going through that process, documenting that process, following up with the employee, and considering um, not just the, the legal impact of having a mandatory vaccine policy, but you know the practical, um, what kind of uh, employee relations concerns could arise? What do we do in the event of resistance? What do we do in terms of uh, you know, the impact on the workforce if there's a large number of employees that um, you know, ultimately decide not to, uh, to take the vaccine? Um, based on either protected reasons or unprotected reasons. So the unprotected at this point would arguably be the just, you know, political or personal beliefs, not based on religion, not based on disability. Um, so those are all considerations before an employer can, uh, can put that policy in place. But again, you know, it, it is an option. Very few, I would say, employers that, that we have um, been in touch with. We actually did a survey of about 700 of our clients and contacts, and I, uh, less than 10% are making it mandatory because of all these considerations and these um, implications. In terms of the question of can an employer fire somebody for not getting a vaccine, um, you know, that certainly feels like a very loaded question in terms of, you know, not a yes or no, like so many of, of what we talk about. Um, it's going to be a very detailed analysis before getting to that point of termination. Now, um, there are some circumstances where termination may be justified and permitted, but before we get there, we need to consider uh, everything that we've talked about. You know, is the requirement job related consistent with a business necessity? If the employee is not vaccinated, will they pose a direct threat to themselves, to the health and safety of themselves or others? Um, what does that mean, that direct threat? Um, the EEOC says that we have to do an individualized assessment considering the duration of the risk, the nature and severity of the harm, the likelihood of the harm, and the imminence of the harm. And I can easily see um, an employee or a plaintiff's counsel taking the position that uh, the vaccine has not been available for the past year and that employee has still been coming into the workplace and performing their duties with a mask, with the social distancing, with the additional sanitation, a reasonable accommodation would be to continue those practices and allow that employee to continue to work as opposed to uh, either excluding them from the workplace or terminating them. Now the EOC has said that um, if there is a direct risk to the health and safety of the, the employee or others, then the employee can exclude the employer, the employer can exclude the employee from the workplace, but cannot take any other action unless there is no way to provide that reasonable accommodation absent an undue hardship. So, you know, again, that accommodation could be temporary remote work, 
or a, a remote work site in the facility. And these uh, considerations have to all be evaluated before making that, um, that determination. So the important thing is for employers and supervisors and managers to recognize that accommodation request, to engage in that interactive, flexible dialogue and identify any accommodations, and then implement them on a even-handed basis. Um, Michelle, did you wanna to touch on any ERISA or ACA implications? Before we go forward? Yes. Yes. We definitely talk about that. And, and this is, you know, the risk of the ACA implications seem like a small piece of the pie, and maybe it is, uh, but it's definitely something to consider because it introduces risk in that if you require all of your employees to be vaccinated, uh, then what you've done is you've created a group health plan when it comes to ERISA and ACA. And uh, however, if you only offer or require the vaccine to those on the group health plan, this is considered integrated with your group health plan. So you can, you can just uh, ensure your group health plan is covering or is complying with ERISA and ACA and you're fine. So let me say this again, if you, uh, if you require or offer the vaccine to all your employees, it's likely going to be considered a group health plan for ERISA and ACA purposes. And that's just not viable. And so what it means is that if you did it, you would be non-compliant and you'd be opening yourself up for risk. Practically speaking, do I think there's any type of uh, anyone policing this? Uh, it's because it's the same concept for flu shots, for on-site flu shots. So I've never heard of an employer getting in trouble or, or uh, anything of that nature with regards to the flu shots. I wouldn't expect anything different from the vaccine clinics and on-site vaccine clinics, for example. But it's something to keep in mind. And you're introducing yourself to risk. Of course, that is the, the, the theme here um, by requiring the vaccines or even offering it to all your employees. Um, so there's that to consider as well. And when it comes to incentives, the risks and the considerations, it's not just um, employment related. It's also when you create incentives around the vaccine, you may have made yourself an employer-sponsored wellness program, which is subject to EEOC, the incentive limits that are, that are by all accounts in limbo, the ADA and, and HIPAA. And so if you're an employer and you're looking to minimize your risk, then encouraging the vaccine is the way to go for, for your organization. And of course, you know, you want to do that, that risk assessment to ensure that you're maintaining a safe work environment. But in a generic statement, you know, just encouraging the vaccine will, will minimize those risks. Excellent. Um, so on to the next bullet, I had I mentioned incentives and the EEOC proposed rules that were withdrawn, um, the discussion on um, the, uh, sorry, the de minimis and, and what could be permitted in terms of that. Um, what employers need to consider, and it's very interesting because we keep seeing headlines of large employers offering $100 bonuses or additional days of PTO or other incentives without, it's not to say that they're not taking these risks into consideration, um, but it, it sort of, it, it conveys that there's not risk or that the risk is, is minimal when it comes to these incentive plans. Um, 
What employers do need to keep in mind is that they have to consider offering alternative means for an employee to earn an incentive if they can't be vaccinated due to a disability um, or risk a potential ADA or other violation. Um, in that case, I've had employers talk about uh, an option of working, watching a workplace safety video, uh, reviewing CDC literature, um, and considering other creative alternatives like um, that an employer may have even implemented in the past for like a flu vaccine. We have a fairly detailed legal alert, alert that we put out on this and we kind of made a, a risk spectrum in terms of the incentives from little to no risk to higher risk. And things like educating employees or possibly providing paid time off for all workers are on the lower risk end of the spectrum. And remember that's for all employees. So it kind of somewhat defeats the purpose of the incentive, but that's the way to avoid the risk there. Um, the de minimis and um, you know, smaller ticket items, that's also on the lower risk area. Um, providing additional incentives for those to get the uh, vaccine or offering an incentive of greater value, that's definitely on the higher risk end of the spectrum. So again, we're still, um, kind of in the dark in terms of what the practical potential exposure will be, um, but we're hoping for further instruction going forward on this. In terms of the penalty, um, I would be very cautious before imposing just a blanket penalty because of the need to go through that dialogue if there is a request for a reasonable accommodation, um, if there is some sort of other consideration that should be taken into effect. The penalty should only be imposed after the employer goes through all the steps that we've discussed um, in the process and determines that it's not a protected reason, that there's no reasonable accommodation, that there's no way to, uh, to facilitate this employee um, you know, continuing on their same schedule or continuing to work out of their, their same workplace without the vaccine. In terms of priority, uh, we did talk about differentiating based on type of job, duties, department, um, but it also should be job related and consistent with a business necessity that those considerations. And uh, a question that has come up quite a bit is, can we um, prioritize maybe high risk employees or older employees? And the important takeaway is that any sort of criteria needs to be uh, established on a non-discriminatory basis. So an employer does not want to use age or disability or some other protected category as the selection criteria. That could expose the employer to potential claims for uh, discrimination based on those protected categories. So, um, so you don't want to do that even though those individuals might be have priority based on state or local guidance to have access to the vaccine, that should not be an employer protocol or an employer uh, basis for uh, creating some sort of hierarchy or priority. Um, and then ways to encourage the vaccinations short of implementing a mandatory policy. So as I mentioned, you know, very few companies that we're working with um, are doing the mandatory, some are, um, but the majority are doing strongly encourage or encourage or even just staying neutral on it, depending on the workforce. Um, in terms of encouraging vaccinations, you know, education, sharing information, providing information about how to access support, fact sheets, maybe a PowerPoint, 
Um, you know, those are ways I think that, you know, knowledge is power and the more information that employees have, the less likely they may be to be reluctant or resistant to getting the vaccine. Um, you know, I'll mention one question. I don't know that this came up in the Q&A box, but it has come up quite a bit just on, on a daily basis where um, an employer may not be necessarily mandating the vaccine, but they work with individuals. They have clients um, maybe in a, a caregiving situation or some other similar type of industry, and the client is requesting that their caregiver or the service provider be vaccinated um, and how to handle that. And that would be a, a similar analysis. There's, there's considerations of you know, client relations, and then there's considerations of potential accommodation. So would it be possible to, uh, to put place to match a, an employee who has been vaccinated with that client? Um, would it be possible then to put the, the employee who's not vaccinated in another role, another um, assignment so that they're not being penalized for not getting vaccinated? And then evaluating whether the, um, the employee who's not getting vaccinated um, has you know, a, a legitimate reason or is, falls within a protected category for doing so. So these are some questions that, um, that employers are still and we're still kind of mulling over. And then another one is in terms of disclosing information, you know, maybe publicizing that all, all our workforce or a majority of our workforce are vaccinated. You know, we're a safe workplace, we're a safe business. Um, that's not recommended as well because you don't want to be disclosing any sort of protected medical information. There's privacy interests, there's ADA considerations. And so even though that might be a potential marketing tool, we're not recommending that at this time. Um, on that level. It also might allow um, the public or coworkers to pick out those employees who may have requested the reasonable accommodation or may not be um, vaccinated for a various reason. And because of that, that's other private information that, that could be disclosed unintentionally. So Michelle, do you want to head into the next slide? Yes. We'll do that right now. The next slide we just wanted to put together some best practices. Really, is it's what Nicole has been saying through the duration of this discussion, but we've we've sort of put it on paper. So everything on this slide is is going to be what you've already heard for the most part. On the slide, once we get to it, um, my computer is still running slow. Here we go. There, the, Fisher Phillips has, and I've talked about your website, Nicole, a, a million times. The Fisher Phillips <laughs> website is amazing. The amount of public information that your firm puts out is nothing short of fantastic. So, whenever I get asked a question that's not necessarily related to benefits and more employment law related, I always check the Fisher Phillips website. And I would tell you what's on there right now is a COVID vaccine resource center amongst other resource centers, but you can go to fisherphillips.com, click on the tile that says vaccine resource center. You will find the 10 step action plan. You'll find templates for a model policy. Um, and, and so many other things are there as well. And so you see, we've got some best practices here 
but I really like if you wanted something you can print or, or really dive into, the Fisher Phillips 10-step action plan for employers is a great place to start as well as you can fill in your gaps and in information with all of the other articles and policies and templates they have there for you. Um, but really at, at the top, you know, I, I think that one, an, an employer should consider forming a vaccine committee, um, mm -hmm. have the plan, perform the risk assessments, uh, you know, all these good things. Nicole, do you have anything to add to this? I think that this is a, a really great concise uh, list. If anybody needs a direct link to this, we're happy to share that as well. And it's a really good roadmap for where we're currently at in terms of vaccine recommendations. So I think this is a very helpful thing to incorporate here, Michelle. Thanks. Okay, good. The next slide we're going to move into is on-site vaccine clinics. Um, there's not much to say here, as we, as I talked about in the very beginning, but just a reminder that it's not entirely clear. It really isn't. Now, Dr. Fauci said that he expects to see pharmacies, community vaccine centers, and mobile units stepping up to increase the number of vaccinations. We all know that President Biden has that very aggressive timeline, 150 million, 150 million Americans vaccinated in 100 days. So Dr. Fauci is saying, well, he thinks that one of the ways that they're going to do this is maybe set up some mobile units. But whether or not or how you as an organization could could uh, raise your hand and say, oh, come see me first for the mobile unit, I, I don't think it's going to be that simple or that clear. I think the employers or the, the mobile units are going to be hitting communities and not necessarily employers. But that's something we just don't know yet. So we do not know. What we know is that right now, if you wanted to bring on an on-site vaccine clinic, those are not available right now. And then we have those employment concerns that I think we talked about, which are just any type of employment concerns that come from requiring a vaccine might be the same, the adverse side effects. If you bring on a vaccine clinic on-site, are you opening yourselves up for risk of a workers' comp claim if there's a significant side effect there and liability and privacy and more? But Nicole, is there, there any, any other kind of specific information you wanna to touch on as far as employment concerns regarding the on-site vaccine clinics? Yeah, I mean, it's also goes back to what we've talked about in terms of how to prioritize employees, you know, the legal considerations with that. Um, and then the logistics, you know, is there the ability to maintain the uh, temperature and how to access the second dose and how to administer? Um, so a lot of considerations. Um, I think this is actually a good time. I'll just mention a question that I, has come up a bunch, um, including today here in terms of, okay, if we're not going to provide it on site, can we ask for proof of vaccination, um, regardless of whether it's mandated or strongly encouraged or neutral positions taken? And the EEOC did indicate that, or did state that yes, an employer can ask for documentation of the immunization source showing the dates of the vaccine, but the employer wants to affirmatively state that the employee does not need to provide any additional medical information. So no information about underlying diagnoses, no information about family history. We don't wanna implicate ADA, GINA, state law. And then that information, anything that's collected has to be treated as a confidential medical record and separ separately filed apart from the employee's personnel file. So 
Um, so the answer is yes, but as always, um, so the yes, the employer may collect this information, but you want to make sure that you're limiting it to the vaccination status and not any additional information that could trigger other requirements. Yeah, definitely a question I've seen too, so I'm glad you touched on that with regards to the proof. And then the last one on on-site vaccine clinics, costs. This is also unclear. As I mentioned, the federal government says we're going to pay for it. We're going to make sure every American can be vaccinated, and the federal and they're going to use federal dollars. And um, if when that expires, I assume the money will run out eventually. And when that expires, presumably the group health plan can cover it at 100% in network as a preventive service. Well, cost, I think, is the least of our worries at this point, which is not something I always get to say. <laughs> okay, next, we are just want to spend a moment on vaccine distribution. There are always questions about how do I know if I'm up next, if, if what's the priority? You know, I have employees across the nation how do I know if, if they are able to get vaccinated and how they're able to do that? There are so many sources for this, and it seems like new ones pop up every day. For example, Nicole mentioned vaccinefinder.org. I found a local public health department by county that, that was, it's national, and it's, uh, the link is here. It's NACCHO.org, and it's a hyperlink. So you can go to any state and any county, click on it, and it takes you right to the local health department by county. And the reason that is so important is because what we're seeing is it's really the local health, public health departments that are responsible for rolling out the, the vaccine distribution or overseeing it. And also you'll have those public websites where you can go online and make your appointment and go to a state-run or county-run facility. So the local public health department has a plethora of information and generally will have the signups for the vaccine if you're in the current category that's designated to get the vaccine. Any other sources you've seen out there, Nicole, that, that might be better than this one or, or different and provide different information? You know, I think you're absolutely right that a lot of it does happen on a local level, and we tend to cross-reference um, state and local, um, and then local-local if there's anything, you know, city-based ever. So we're, we're always kind of monitoring as well, but, um, but the advice is right in terms of um, how this is generally being rolled out. Right. And, it's, and if you're frustrated as a listener right now, just know that this it's going so fast. The distributions are changing and the, and the allocations and how much is available. It's, it's all so happening so fast that you're not alone. Everyone wants to know what, where can I go and get all the information at once or to know everything at once. And the frustrating part is that we just, there's just no way to do that right now. So right. my best guidance is to go to that, the, um, the local public health department which is generally going to, going to be by county. And then the best source for defining certain groups per the, the schedule, the phase schedule. Well, I kind of started researching this on my own because I got the question a few times. And, and for example, am I in the critical manufacturing group? So I went to a few local health department pages 
And I noticed that they were clearly outlining who was was specifically part of the distribution phase. So I found that instead of going federally to the CDC website, which you could do, of course, um, but I also think because it's really the local health departments that are overseeing this with direction from the CDC and federal government, that I think it, I just cut that part out and I went straight to the local health departments and they seem to be defining it very well on their site. So that, that's kind of my best guidance at this point as well. Yeah, I'll just add that we have um, been preparing kind of what we're calling like toolkits for employers with essential workers who are trying to push those workers forward in terms of priority. Um, so documentation, sometimes we've done outreach to the state and local authorities explaining why these individuals should be given priority, letters to employees. Some of you have may already been uh, sharing those with your employees or receive them from different sources um, and different documentation for employers who do have these essential workers that are really trying to, um, to move this forward as quickly as possible. Oh, wow. Okay. So I want to, I, I didn't know this, Nicole, so I kind of want to clarify what you're saying so you uh, you all have fisher phillips has a, a toolkit and you can actually advocate for certain employers or groups of employers yeah. and yeah. Uh, um, and it's not that our firm is necessarily doing it we'll do it we'll draft we'll ghostwrite it for the client where the client the company can then forward that information to the specific authorities who we've identified are on the task force on the committees you know making those decisions and um, you know, it, just trying to do what we can to you're saying, like you're saying, advocate for the employees. Ah, it, that is really great. I did not know that employers could advocate for themselves, but it's interesting because I've certainly seen headlines where some employers have gone out of turn, and and you know, it's and and and, and, and yeah. I've all and I wonder like how does that happen? And I just I just wonder if uh, the the advocacy it's that portion of it maybe moves them up in the line so yeah. it's um, very good to know yes thank mm -hmm. you so I want to stop here the next slide that we have is, is toilet paper talk where I really discuss uh, things that are not related to the vaccine and I go over American rescue plan and then Nicole has some things to add but I think if we stop here and answer some employer specific questions so that we can answer the address the concerns of our our audience i think that'd be a good time to do that right now mm -hmm. nicole have you seen any questions that we have not addressed i know that we've addressed a lot and they're asked a few different ways but any that we right. have, you yeah, have not touched to, on try to weave them in um <laughs> i'm just scanning right now there's okay uh, there's some, as you're scanning, Nicole, I'll put out some info that our attendees have graciously shared. Uh, in California, there's myturn.ca.gov that you can use to check your eligibility. And I just did this yesterday. Thank you, Stacey. You can register to become notified when you become eligible. So that site is myturn.ca.gov. You can check your eligibility and then you can actually register to be notified when you become eligible. So apparently they will send me an email and let me know when it's my turn. Uh, that, that's pretty cool information. Thank you for, for our listener for bringing that to our attention so we could get Very that out fun. there. Yeah. Um, the PowerPoint will be available. Um, the PowerPoint, a recording and a copy of, uh, of the, the Q&A's 
addressed will also be sent post-webinar. Great. So there's a couple questions from individuals who unfortunately look like they've left, but I'll go ahead and, and uh, pose them in case anybody else is wondering. So have there been any adverse effects from employers who have offered bonuses to employees getting vaccines? And um, so, you know, I mentioned that this is a gray area, that there's a risk spectrum um, in terms of the significance or the amount of the bonus or the incentive. And I'm not aware of any uh, litigation or claims or threats of claims as of now, but our firm does have a, a COVID-19 litigation tracker. And part of that is where we do monitor this issue. So um, if and when that does come up, we will have that information available. Um, but still, it's something for employers to keep in mind and consider uh, and, and get advice of counsel before moving forward. Once an employee gets the vaccine, is it recommended for the employer to still require the employee to continue having a COVID test? And this goes back to what I mentioned between the guidance, the inconsistent guidance from um, the CDC, LA County, California, Cal OSHA. And so California and Cal OSHA uh, Cal OSHA, the ETS, the Emergency Temporary Standards, have a testing requirement in the event of an outbreak in the workplace. And those requirements are still in place regardless of whether the employee has been vaccinated. And that, that's actually one of the FAQs currently available. Um, the FAQ does note that this response may change as information evolves, but as of now, at least the testing requirement under the Cal OSHA ETS um, standards do, they'd have to be complied with regardless of vaccination status. Um, in terms of the question of whether if the employer just highly encourages, doesn't require the vaccination, do they have to compensate the employee for the time? Um, if it's not required, um, then it does not necessarily have to be compensated for the time and the mileage and so forth. Um, and that's why you want to have a policy in place that explains the company's position on this, whether reimbursement will be provided, um, and doesn't uh, penalize or, or have any sort of adverse impact on an employee that, uh, that doesn't have the vaccine, meaning you know, you're compensating those employees who do, that could be seen as a potential um, you know, inadvertent uh, mandate or some other sort of uh, way of, of kind of circumventing the highly encouraged versus the mandate in those considerations. What is the recommendation for quarantine from students traveling into California from California, uh, some, sorry, from Canada, for example? Um, so the travel restriction um, still, it, California state has an advisory that an employee, I'm sorry, an individual coming into the state um, should quarantine. LA County has a mandate that they must quarantine. So it depends, and there's other local areas with similar mandates. So you wanna look at where is that individual coming into um, and does that location have a recommendation or a requirement? Okay. Michelle, do you see any other ones that? Let's see. I think I have a couple that are kind of the same along, with regards to proof. So mm -hmm. the question kind of looks like it's the same theme, but asked a different way. You know, can, 
can an employer still ask for proof of a vaccine even if they do not have a policy that um, requires them to, to the employee to have a vaccine? So if they take a neutral position as the employer, can they still ask for the vaccination info? You know, the, it's generally, at least from the EEOC, it's, it's talking about um, just the general, can an employer inquire? Is that a medical inquiry? And the response is that whether it's mandated or highly recommended, strongly suggested, um, the employer can ask just for that information. But again, you want to be careful that the inquiry stops there. No additional information is, is uh, sought and that you're actually affirmatively stating to the employee that you, they should not provide any additional information. Okay, great. We had another question. Is, is the same question, but it's just being posed differently. If the company pays for the time off to get a vaccine, but doesn't require it, can we ask for proof that they got the vaccine? And so, Nicole, I assume the same answer would apply there. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, there's a question that I think has come in a couple times. Can you talk about best practice for temperature checks regarding time and pay? The I mentioned the class action lawsuit, which is a little bit of a, um, you know, kind of sticks with you. Um, so if you're requiring your employees, and this is recommended um, before they come into the workplace to um, confirm that they don't have a temperature, they don't have any symptoms, they haven't been exposed or in close contact, they haven't traveled outside the area or the state. Um, that time that it takes that employee, and it could be very, very minor, it's just a very short amount of time, needs to be accounted for somehow in the timekeeping system. So whether it's, you know, again, as precise as you can get, the better. So if the employee is spending five minutes waiting in line to get their temperature check before they come into the factory, um, or even if it's just a quick email that they fill out each day, that time should be accounted for in their time records. Um, to the extent that you can have them clock in before they go through that process, then that will cover that. Um, if not, adjust their time accordingly and have them confirm that that's accurate. So if you're going to be giving employees another you know, five minutes on their time card, um, you know, and I recommend this just generally, have employees confirm that they've reviewed their time records and their uh, payroll records, that they're accurate, that all their time that they worked or was under the employer's control has been accounted for and properly paid. That can be an attestation that an employee fills out um, on a regular basis. Someone asked if Fisher Phillips has a sample policy for requirement versus encouraging the vaccine for an employee. We do, we do. Um, and I believe that that's publicly available. And if anybody has a, an issue accessing it, just let me or Michelle know, and I'm happy to share that with you. Yes, actually, um, I can give some more details here. So fisherphillips.com, click on the Vaccine Resource Center, which is one of the tiles in about the middle of the page. And then you can go to their data bank. And they have a model mandatory vaccine policy, a model non-mandatory vaccine policy, an accommodation procedure, request for medical exemption slash accommodation, um, or request for religious exemption slash accommodation. So some really good forms for, to get you started on, their, on the Fisher Phillips website. Great. All right, so I think that might be it. We can move on. Uh, for everyone that's still in the audience, now I will put together a list of, of um, questions 
that have been asked during the session, and we will send those out so that you can see everything that was posed and, and have a list of those FAQs. If you need to drop off now, feel free to do so. You'll get a copy of the recording, or you could go to Apple Podcasts and download Kamayo's Compliance Talk. We have just a few more slides left here where we want to talk about some relevant issues that are not related to the COVID, COVID vaccine. Um, the first one is that the Biden, President Biden's plan, the American Rescue Plan, that looks very likely to pass in one shape or another, one form or the other. Um, so I want to, the, the plan does include COBRA subsidies to the end of September of this year. I think that's going to be most relevant to employers. So, and, and also resuming and expanding mandatory FFCRA, so making it for larger employers as well, expanding unemployment, raising minimum wage, which has been a hot topic and a sticking point in the bill, along with a more aggressive vaccine rollout, additional cash payments to Americans. I believe I was looking the other day, and March 12th is the deadline for this to, to pass. So I would say by, by mid-March, we will know a lot more. And it seems pretty likely that something will pass. And it just maybe some of the deep, the fine print will change. And Nicole, did you have anything to, to speak to as far as relevant issues? Yeah, I wanted to share a little bit of inside intel with the audience. Um, so California, you had mentioned the possibility of resuming and expanding FFCRA, which was the uh, COVID emergency paid sick leave and emergency FMLA for individuals who uh, meet one of the qualifying criteria, additional paid leave for those individuals. California had passed um, in 2020 a, um, a required COVID paid sick leave for larger employers, so the employers that were excluded from the FFCRA. And there's a pending bill that will be emergency legislation when it's passed, and I do ex expect it to be passed very shortly, that will be essentially reinstating the California emergency paid sick leave that expired at the end of 2020 and expands some of the reasons um, for the reasons to use the, the paid sick leave. So it will apply not just to the larger employers, but to all employers. Um, in terms of the broader categories of qualifying reasons, it will include um, if the covered worker is attending an appointment to receive a vaccine or experiencing uh, symptoms related to the vaccine. And many of us have heard that the second dose can cause quite a few symptoms or reaction. And this now paid time off that will be in effect, um, the employee can use that paid sick leave for this purpose. And that was actually a question that came up uh, I think a couple times in the Q&A was, do we have to pay for that time if there's a side effect or a result, a response to the uh, the vaccination? And now we have uh, a potential paid sick leave um, statute that's going to be coming down um, that will be actually providing time off for that. It will be retroactive to January 1st, 2021, and is currently drafted to go through September 2021. And it will be, as the other ones, very similar, 80 hours of paid sick leave per calendar year. And what that means to us, the way that we're currently interpreting it, is that even if you provided these 80 hours last year, 2020, 2021 is a different calendar year, and the employee gets to re-up another 80 hours for these purposes. Um, difference between FFCRA and California was that there was no tax credit under California. 
Um, and a lot of the local ordinances are still in play too. So if you have employees in the unincorporated areas of LA County and you're located in that area, San Francisco, Oakland, Santa Rosa, a, a lot of local areas have continued or their emergency paid sick leaves are ongoing. So those are um, items to keep on your radar as well. Okay. All right, and lastly, we'll just finish up with some resources. We talked about the Fisher Phillips website. You also can follow my blog or, or uh, any Bolton blog at www.boltonco.com slash blog. If you're a Bolton client, you have access to ThinkHR and you can search ThinkHR for all things COVID related, including sample forms. So don't forget about that. And for employment matters, there's the great information that Fisher Phillips puts out. They also have that vaccine resource center as well as a COVID-19 resource center, one also specific to California. There are vaccine FAQs up on the Fisher Phillips site. So if you haven't done so, bookmark fisherphillips.com so that you're able to go and review all of the publicly available information that they have listed or up on the site a lot of a uh, lot of great stuff that you can use as you move forward i'm trying this is the awkward silence i'm trying to advance my slide but of course that's not happening <laughs> I see it. I see it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, we'll go ahead and end the webinar right now. Normally you would see a slide that would indicate that, uh, but if you need to ask Nicole and I a question afterwards, um, feel free to reach out to me. You can, uh, you can do so and we'll get to you. I believe there's a, a way to ask questions via your registration. And then Nicole, any last questions that, that um, we can address right now? Or that came in? None that are none that we can just wrap up very quickly, but please feel free to okay. reach out anytime. If there are any questions that were not answered that you do want a response to, I'm happy to do that. Um, I know that this is not the easiest path to navigate, but we're all on it together and you know we're here for you. And I really appreciate you having me again, Michelle. Yes, thank you so much, Nicole. Really appreciate it. For those on the line, we will send a copy of the slides uh, and a recording and a copy of the Q&As posed via post-webinar email probably around Monday afternoon. All right. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, Nicole. Have a wonderful day. Take care. You too.